The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. morning and welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study and our ongoing study into the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. So glad you could be with us today because we've got a great study. We're wrapping up our study over the last five weeks of the book of 1 Timothy. Just to give you a little preview of what's coming up, we're going to be looking next week at Paul's return to Rome. And that's significant because he's going to be wrongfully accused. He's going to be wrongfully imprisoned. It's going to be the beginning of his end, and we're going to use that framework to tackle one of the most significant philosophical questions anyone will ever ask you during their life about the world and God in it. And it's the question of why do bad things happen to good people? It's going to be a great study next week, so I hope you'll join us. But before we get there, we got to finish 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy has been a great study about church and how churches are supposed to operate and this week we're up to a very significant issue that i've titled spiritual warfare the battle for the church and since we are the church it's really the battle for us just to put us all into context in case you've not been with us quick reminder paul is wintering uh, in the city of nicopolis he is writing back to his protege uh, timothy who is the pastor at the church at ephesus at that time probably the largest christian church anywhere in the world uh, by our standards it would be tiny but by his standards in the first century it was quite large with probably well over uh, two or three hundred people in the church and they had problems they had significant cultural problems they had social problems uh, they had a lot of conflict and so we're seeing Paul work through some issues with Timothy about how to create a church that's going to survive into the next few centuries. We tackled the issue in chapter one of looking at why some churches die. We concluded by saying that we'll never change the world by just going to church. We're only going to change the world by being the church. And in chapter one and chapter two, we looked at what that meant. In chapter two, we talked about how to change the world. How do you deal with people to make a positive difference? And as Christians, we looked at the Greek word and decided not to be another person's overseer. The mandate from scripture in chapter two was not to be another person's overseer, to love them to Christ, not to regulate them or rule them as to Christ. We looked at the model from Luke chapter 15 about praying to have a heart for the lost. And the parable we saw from Luke 15 was the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, and we saw how that applied to us in the heart that we need to have for the lost that otherwise we would just feel contempt for. We talked about in chapter three and four, doing church God's way. We looked at women in the church, uh, different church roles of elder, pastor, deacon, different things. We talked about church is not being about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about him. And once we can focus on him, then we can be the church and the individuals in the church that he wants us to be. We picked up a little nugget of significance in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3.15 that talked about the church being the pillar and foundation of the truth. And last week, as we segued into chapter 4 and chapter 5, we looked at how we stand for truth, particularly in 2020, which is a post-truth world. And we looked at what that means culturally and what that means uh, politically and how we deal with a world that overvalues personal opinion overvalues emotional editorialism and devalues factual truth. We talked about the challenges to us as Christians and how we have got to be a people of truth. We've got to stand up for truth and we've got to speak out against uh, those that don't tell the truth or have problems with truth or overvalue personal opinion, because if we don't, it runs the risk of eroding the foundation of our faith and our testimony, because at that point, if we don't uh, converse with people in terms of true truth and absolute truth, you just end up with a battle of opinions. And we can't do that if we have any hope of uh, establishing the truth of God's word over someone else's opinion uh, or false religious tradition. If you go through all of those issues, what you'll discover is that you get into chapter 5, you'll say, I'm going to stand up for truth, I'm going to be a person of truth, I'm going to be a person that's trying to be the church in the world, 
and then realize it's not easy. I'm getting beaten up by Satan. I'm getting blocks in my life. I'm getting blocks in my schedule. I'm getting blocks with those people I try to deal with. And if you look at it objectively, you'll realize the reason those blocks are happening is when you try to stand up and be the person that God wants you to be, you're going to encounter spiritual warfare. So Paul ends in chapter 6 of his book of 1 Timothy by talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of things. He starts with the premise of where I got this title uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, if I hadn't taught you the first couple of lessons in 1 Timothy, you'd look at that and you wonder, well, who am I fighting? And you might come to the conclusion you're fighting everybody else that's not a Christian or everybody else that doesn't think like you. And that's not the, that's not the point. That's not how we can focus on this because the whole point of the first four chapters in 1 Timothy was to love people to Christ, not to fight with them to Christ or to batter them to Christ. We've got to fight the fight as soldiers in spiritual warfare, not in warfare against other people. So in 2020, it's a reminder that our enemies are not people of other faiths. Our enemies are not Muslims. Our enemies are not uh, anyone else that doesn't proclaim Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Our enemies are Satan and his forces. Our enemies are not people that might be Americans. Uh, they might even claim to be Christian, but we don't like their lifestyle for some reason. They are not the enemy. They're people that we're also supposed to love to Christ. And so when Paul talks about fighting the fight of faith, he is not talking about fighting other people. He's not talking about fighting people of other lifestyles. He's not talking about fighting people of other religion. He's talking about how we fight as a Christian involved in spiritual warfare. Now, a neat little thing about 1 Timothy is this theme is bookended. And I just hit it in passing in chapter 1 because in chapter 1, verses 18, he says, fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. And so he picks up on this idea of fight the good fight in chapter 1. He hits it again in, verse, uh, in chapter 6. And so we get this bookended theme of fighting the fight. And so we've got to ask, how do I do that? How do I fight the fight if I can't see who I'm fighting? How do I fight the fight if I don't know what the strategy is or the plan is of the person that I can't see that's fighting me? And those are great questions, and I'm really glad we have the opportunity to study this this morning because it's really going to be applicable, and I think i got some neat stuff for you to work on. Uh, just to put this into context, you remember when we went into the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, I gave you an introductory lesson on spiritual warfare. When we got to chapter 6, we talked about how our battle is spiritual. It's not earthly. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against people, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, we talked about in Ephesians chapter 6 what all that meant, and you can go back and listen to the lesson if you want to hear a whole lesson on those issues and what those terms mean, but the point here is our battle is spiritual, and so we've got to start by realizing we can't see our enemy, we can't hear from our enemy, we can't talk to our enemy, we can see the effects of the enemy, we can see how it impacts us and deal with that. We've got an unseen enemy that should immediately indicate how we're going to fight this fight, and that is, if it's a spiritual enemy, we got to fight it spiritually. Now, a great little verse to cross-reference here from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8, tells us who is waging this spiritual battle, and it's none other than Satan himself. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So not only is the battle waged by Satan, it says every single minute of every single day he is roaming the world and has forces roaming the world look for someone to devour. And I guarantee you at times that can be us, and we're going to talk about that and how we deal with that. Now, one of the things we've got to realize is if you look at Scripture, we see Satan from Genesis chapter 2 all the way through the end of the book of the Revelation. And in the ministry of Christ, it's significant that his earthly ministry was bookended by encounters of Satan. The image I've got on the screen was an artist 
uh, fanciful representation of what uh, Jesus uh, start of his temptation uh, before he went right after he was baptized before he went and spent so much time uh, in the desert when he had to, after his time of fasting when he encountered Satan and Satan tempted him with earthly power and all these different things and he had to deal with Satan uh, before he set foot into any ground or arena for his earthly ministry that was bookended by his time in the Garden of Gethsemane when in the Garden of Gethsemane his battle with Satan was so intense scripture says that the capillaries underneath his skin ruptured with stress and he bled uh, or he sweated blood out his sweat glands that's an intense degree of stress an intense degree of uh, conflict with Satan and so with Christ we see his progression his earthly ministry uh, his uh, uh, closer to the cross and it just increased his growth or increased his spiritual attack the application for us is the more we grow in Christ the more we become Christ-like in our words and our actions and our thoughts and our prayers, the more it increases our spiritual attack. The reason why ought to be obvious. If you're not growing, if you're not having much to do for God, why does Satan need to lift a finger to mess with you? He's got you exactly where he wants you. But if you're committed in Bible study, if you're committed in prayer, if you're committed in the things that involve your spiritual gifts or helping other people or the, all the different things we've talked about in this class and all the things that Pastor Greg talks about. If you're doing those things, then Satan says, I got to stop her. I've got to stop him. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The people that need the prayer the most uh, in your prayer life over this issue of spiritual attack are those using your, their spiritual gifts. It's the reason why I pray for Pastor Greg every single week and a lot of times every single day. Because of all the people in our church Satan wants to silence, it's Greg. It's the reason why I ask for your prayer, for me and Natalie and the kids. Because if there's anybody in our class that Satan wants to silence, it's me. So I covet your prayer. I know Greg does as well. But we've got to realize that for all of us, our spiritual growth, as you start to do more for God, Satan's going to put you in his targets and say, I'm going to slow them down or I'm going to silence them. If we're busy and we're distracted, then Satan doesn't have to worry about us because we're too busy doing the things of the world. If we prioritize and put God first, then we've got to start worrying about more satanic attack and the issue from his demons. We've also got to realize that no one is immune from spiritual attack. One of the reasons I wanted to take the Apostle Paul so slowly and one of the reasons it's taken us almost two years to go from his childhood up until where he is right now uh, in the winter of 63 and 64 AD is to show all along the way all the satanic attack he's been under you may recall way back when I taught you first Thessalonians he said in writing to that church that he wanted to come to them earlier, but Satan stood in his way. And writing to the church at Galatians, he talked about some of the satanic attack he had been under. And writing to the church at Ephesus, he commented on the satanic attack that they were under and that he was under. We've seen evidence of satanic attack in Paul in terms of the abuse he took uh, from the religious leaders of his day, the abuse he took from the political leaders of his day, uh, how he was beaten, how he was left for dead, uh, how his back is just permanently scarred because of what he went through. He has gone through more spiritual warfare than any of us could ever contemplate. And the lesson we need to draw is none of us are immune. Uh, all of us are fair game. Scripture makes it clear that spiritual warfare is true for every believer. And if it's true for Paul, if it's true for Christ, it's definitely going to be true for us as well. The other thing we've got to realize is that Scripture gives us all kinds of insight into the ways Satan comes after us. He implicates governments of the world. He uh, masters in deception and the lies that people in our social world, our political world spout uh, that give basis for Satan to uh, create doubt about something God said. He can destroy lives in terms of uh, marriages and work relationships and all types of things that we get involved in that we treasure. Satan wants to tear down. We've talked about 
the persecution of Paul and other Christian saints. We've talked about how he stops us from using our spiritual gifts as we study different things in the life of Paul. We've talked about how uh, in, in the issue of 1 Timothy chapter 1, how he can lead to the split of churches, how he can lead to churches uh, to de-emphasize uh, the truth of God's word and the truth of who Christ is and the truth of his resurrection and the truth of his second coming. Uh, we've talked about just the doubt that he can create that goes all the way back to Genesis. All of these different things we've got to realize are part of Satan's playbook and whether it's social, whether it's vocational, whether it's political, whether it's some other church, or even within our church, we've got to realize that Satan's game plan is to get us to doubt, to get us confused, to get us frustrated, to get us to want to quit using our spiritual gifts uh, and stop telling other people about who Jesus Christ is. At this point, a lot of people just become frustrated and say, well, why can't everyone see it more clearly? And I don't want to leave this issue without pointing out something that I passed by in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it gives us a great little insight that you and I can see on television almost every single day. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us Satan masquerades as an angel of light. His servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The way that has appeared in our culture is people who believe in ghosts. There are now dozens of television shows with people that'll do little ghost stories where someone's wanting to talk to Aunt Millie or Uncle Johnny or Grandpa Joe or whoever it is. And what you see in those situations, I think is very clear, are the demonic mimicking a loved one trying to give some kind of information back to the person to lead them to believe in a truth other than the truth of the Holy Bible. And that's an illustration that we see in 2020 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that we've got to realize Satan will stop at nothing to lie, to deceive, to steal the truth that people hang on to to give them false hope. Anything Satan can do to get them to doubt what's in their Bible, to believe their own truth or believe their opinion supersedes the truth of the Bible. And it's just an illustration in our culture of just how insidious uh, and how deep Satan's attack has become. So now we transition into what do we do with it? We've got to jump into 1 Timothy chapter 6 and look at this issue of spiritual warfare, which is the battle of the church, which is really the battle for you and I. We've got some neat little stuff to talk about because he starts with a really fascinating point where he says we're going to flee from unnecessary disputes. Now, we see all kinds of disputes in our world. We see personal disputes within families. We see disputes uh, among workers. We see disputes uh, politically and socially. Uh, this weekend has been brutal with the racial conflict that we've seen running around our country. Our country has been uh, torn apart in recent years with political disputes and conflicts. Uh, disputes are on the news every single day somewhere. It's fascinating what Scripture says is the source of that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. I've condensed this a little bit to get it into one screen, given the technological format we're using. But it starts in 3 that says, If anyone teaches other doctrine, other than the doctrine of Jesus Christ our Savior, that person is conceited, understands nothing, has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicion, and consistent disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. He then says in verse 11 to Timothy, but you, man of God, run from these things. Sociologically, this is absolutely fascinating to me because it says when we look at society, when we look at families, when we look at culture and we see disagreements and disputes and fights, it says the core of that dispute is someone that doesn't see reality correctly. And it traces it back and says the foundation for seeing reality correctly is an understanding of the doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is fascinating that he says that if anyone teaches a doctrine other than Jesus Christ as their Savior, it puts them on a slippery slope that is ultimately going to lead to other disputes, an arrogant, conceited lack of real understanding of the real world around them, 
and then snowballs into disputes and arguments over words that then snowballs even more into envy over silly things, quarreling over silly things, slander over people's personal opinions or the things they do or say, evil suspicions about why people do other things, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of truth. I just think that's sociologically fascinating because if the cornerstone of truth is Jesus Christ, it makes all the sense in the world that those that have a poor foundation or a foundation not based on truth, that things would be out of kilter, the foundation wouldn't be stable, and things that came off of that foundation would over time create bigger and bigger problems. Now, don't get me wrong. Remember our premise here. We're trying to love people to Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to throw stones or aspersions about people that gets in fights or quarrels, and even Christians can get in, get in fight and quarrels and misunderstandings. My point is, culturally, the reason why we've got so much conflict in 2020, and more so than in prior years, and we'll see more and more in the days to come, is because of the foundation from which it all starts. And the advice to Timothy is not get in the middle of it. It's not win the debate. It's not argue with everybody. It's not get in people's face to tell them why you're right. This is consistent with his theme of loving people to Christ. One of the ways you're going to love them to Christ is not fight with them and have conflict with them over true truth. And he says, run from those conflicts and instead work on people's needs. Don't engage them where there's conflict and heat. Engage them where you can really work on their needs and show them the hands and the feet and the eyes and the touch of Jesus Christ. In our culture, we just see conflict galore. Uh, I thought some of these images were uh, visually interesting in terms of describing the culture of conflict that we live in. But it's so fascinating. His advice is resist the sinful temptation to argue and fight because that's your sin nature. If we're going to love people to Christ, we've got to reach out to where there's needs. We've got to use our spiritual gift to meet those needs and not engage in the fight of culture because we think politically we're right or socially we're right or any other reason why we're right. If we're going to love them to Christ, we're not going to be able to debate them and argue and get in their face. Now, the next little point he makes besides running from those silly disputes is to be like Jesus. And this seems fundamental, but it's a heck of a lot harder than it initially sounds because his teaching here is so simple. He says in the second part of verse 11, but you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Now, we could do a whole lesson just on this one verse. There's so much in those words, but I've hit all those in prior lessons, and so I don't really need to spend much time in them other than to remind you how they differ. When he talks about righteousness, he's talking about the things that you do that other people see, the things that you do that make you winsome in their eyes, not offensive in their eyes. When he talks about godliness, he's talking about the things you do that no one else sees. And so they're really opposite sides of the same coin. It's what you do. One aspect is what the world sees. One aspect is what only God sees, but it's intended to have a consistency or a pureness. It then manifests in faith, which means I'm always uh, focused on the truth of God's word. It's love. I'm not trying to beat people or assault people into heaven. I'm trying to love them into heaven and constantly meet their needs, even if I disagree with them or even if they're in a different uh, religious tradition. I got to have endurance because none of that's going to be quick and none of it's going to be easy. And rather than being frustrated, I've always got to be gentle. Each of those descriptions, each of those words describe Jesus Christ. And the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ on a daily basis, simply requires us to do what those old bracelets uh, reminded us of a couple of years ago. Remember back a couple of years ago when WWJD was a big deal and everybody had a bracelet. Uh, I looked for mine to see if I could wear one and show you guys it, but I couldn't find it. So it's, I'm sure, in a sock drawer somewhere. I don't know where it went, but uh, I found some images for them. You guys remember them. And uh, I always thought they were interesting because while gimmicky and some people almost treated them almost like a, a lucky charm, almost kind of like a talisman or a rabbit's foot, they really were good for me personally because if anything gives you a reminder to ask, what would Jesus do? That's a good thing. 
if I could have something that reminded me as I'm walking into my law firm, what would Jesus do today? If I'm about to make a phone call I dread making, I think to myself, what would Jesus do? If I've got a conflict with somebody and I've got to work my way through it, and I think, what would Jesus do? If I'm faced with some kind of temptation and I can remember, what would Jesus do? And all those different aspects of life, that really is a good thing. And that's what Paul's trying to encourage Timothy to do. And don't lose sight of the fact, if you think, Chris, this is easy. I was waiting for you to teach me something really profound. Don't lose sight of the fact of what he's trying to do here. He's trying to say, this is how you fight spiritual warfare. Don't lose sight of the fact that we've got to practice the fundamentals. We've got to be like Christ. If I want to survive spiritual warfare, I've got to put myself in a position of thinking like Christ, doing what Christ did, and that's a tall challenge. None of us are ever going to do exactly what Jesus would do until we're in heaven. The earthly sinful bodies we're in make us impossible to ever reach perfection, but on an individual choice basis, minute by minute, day by day, person by person in our lives, we've got to try. The challenge for us as Christians is not to be perfect. It's to be committed it's to try and we trip up to ask for forgiveness back up and try it again and that's the person that honors god that's the person that it says is a person after god's own heart our next little point we've got to keep an eternal perspective because these things are always lifelong battles the spiritual warfare we're in starts the minute you become a christian it goes all the way till the time we step into heaven we've got to keep that eternal perspective he said to timothy in six twelve, take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. When he says take hold of, he's using the Greek word for grab onto. And uh, I, I thought uh, it was uh, in 2020 voca vocabulary, it would be get a grip, hold on to something. And this really had an application to me because when my kids were in high school, they wanted to join a climbing gym. There's a gym uh, that used to be over on the north, I think it's still there, over on the north side of I-10 uh, in the Spring Branch area. They had a great climbing wall and our kids would go and we would wrap up and if somebody was climbing, somebody else has to uh, hold the rope and kind of make sure they're safe. Uh, but it taught me a couple of things because I'd never climbed before. I'd never been uh, in the mountains long enough in the summertime to want to climb or trust myself to climb without getting hurt. But in a climbing gym, I realized how important it is to grip onto little bitty things. And based on the situation you're in, that little bitty grip and you hanging on to that little bitty grip can mean the difference between injury or health and sometimes life and death. Because of climbing with my kids, I got really, really interested in those guys that would climb uh, big sheer sheets of rock like El Capitan in uh, California uh, in, in the Yosemite National Park and uh, climbing other things up sheer walls in, in, the, in Mount Everest or different places like that. And I just became completely fascinated with people that for hours on end or sometimes days on end could hold their body weight on their fingertips that could climb up a rock face with just little cracks and crevices and little toe holes where their grip literally was determining the difference between health and safety or life and death. And that has become such a great spiritual application for me. Because once I realized what it was like to rock climb and how critical that tiny grip is, I realized hanging on to that sliver of faith in my eternal resting place gives me the motivation when life is so hard. When I'm in an intense conflict at work, when I'm under intense financial pressure, when I'm tackling something at church that just seems overwhelming, or something in my own spiritual life that's troubling, if I can just hang on to that thought, that truth, the promise of where my eternity is, then I've got something to hang on to that's the difference between health and danger and the difference between life and death. And so that picture for me has helped because if you just kind of abstractly look at it and think, well, yeah, I know I'm going to be in heaven, that doesn't seem like it's a, a toehold or a finger hold worth hanging on to. 
But for us, so many times, that really is the difference between danger and safety and life and death. So we've got to remember to keep a grip on that truth. A couple of cross-references of Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, 2 reminds us to set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. That's a priority issue. That's an issue of what we're focusing on in terms of uh, this frustration I have today or this desire I have today is really short term. I've got to be focused on the longer term things of what it's going to be like spending eternity in heaven and not get hung up on short term frustrations. Other cross reference Philippians chapter 320 it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm a citizen of heaven, shouldn't I act like it? I'm a citizen of Texas. I act like that. I'm a citizen of the United States. I act like that. Why wouldn't I also act like a citizen of heaven if, in fact, I am a citizen of heaven? That's why Paul wrote it as encouragement to the church at Philippi. That's why it's been preserved for us. We've got to do the same thing. Fourth little point, we've got to persevere. Once again, seems simple, but our reminder here is not only do I have to look for those things in heaven, not only do I have to hang on to them like I would a toe hold or a finger hold in a climbing gym uh, with the promise of my eternity, but I've got to persevere through all of those things that are driving me crazy. I've got to persevere through the financial stress. I've got to persevere through the heartache. I've got to persevere through uh, loss when we encounter loss or tragedy in our lives. I've got to put one foot in front of the other. He tells Timothy in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, In the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep these commands without fault or failure, until the period of our Lord Jesus Christ. I bolded his comment on perseverance, his reference that we've got to keep these commands, the things we just talked about. Without fault or failure, meaning doing the best I can, not being criticized for lack of an effort or lack of faith or lack of heart. I've got to keep that up until the very, very end of one of two things, either the end of my life or the return of Christ, whichever happens first. And as long as that's my focus, as long as I realize I've got to persevere in these things, no matter how hard it is, it's a reminder that I've got to keep running the race. Our application here is real simple. It's keep on keeping on. And once again, it sounds fundamental, it sounds elementary, but that's the key to the Christian faith because the mornings that you don't want to pull the covers uh, off your head, you want to stay under the covers. You're just struggling with depression. You're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with fear over virus issues or racial strife or everything else we're going on. The reminder is I've got to persevere. I'm not alone. Christ is with me through the Holy Spirit in my heart. I've got his word to guide me. And I know I've got a Savior that's in charge. But I've got to get out of bed. I got to keep taking steps forward. And his command is if I do those things, he's still in charge and it's going to be okay. And that's where we get down to our final point because if I'm going to hold on to this promise of the future, that ultimately it's going to be okay. If I'm going to hang on with perseverance when I do not understand the conflict I'm in, the loss I'm experiencing, the tragedy I'm dealing with. I still have to trust his timing because he's ultimately in charge. He says two little things in this neat passage in verses 15 and 16. He starts in verse 15 by saying God will bring this about, this victory over spiritual warfare, in his own time. It means if he's fighting the battle, I'm just a soldier in the battle, then I've got to trust his timing. And it says he's going to bring these things about. He's going to have victory in the spiritual warfare. I'm fighting short term. He's going to bring about victory in spiritual warfare long term when he comes back to the earth and puts Satan in his place in the pit of fire uh, for all eternity. And all of those issues, short term and long term, is on God's calendar and God's timetable. I simply have to trust. Now, I got to say, as a Christian, this is one of the hardest things because we always want him to be early. Uh, and the truism is while God is never late, God passes up many, many opportunities in our lives to be early. We want him early, which is as soon as we're aware of a problem, we start screaming, help, get me out of this, deal with this, help me through this crisis. And so many times there is a purpose in the crisis. 
He wants us to share with other people in the crisis. He wants us to empathize with other people because we've been in the crisis. He wants us to learn from the struggle so we can walk along and limp with others who are in the crisis. And if all of a sudden, as soon as we get rough waters, we say, help, get me out of here, we lose the ability to relate, we lose the ability to empathize, we lose the ability to hold on along somebody and limp with them through the crises of life. And so trusting his timetable is a recognition that he's never gonna be late. He knows when the right time is. But I just have to accept the fact He's not going to be early unless that's his will. So I've got to realize he's going to pass up opportunities to meet my timeline, and I've got to learn the patience to trust his timeline. I get a lot of comfort through the last part of this verse because it talks about he's the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or can see him. To him be honor and eternal might. What he's basically saying is the guy fighting our spiritual warfare cannot be beaten. I highlighted sovereign, king, and Lord just to emphasize what that means. Sovereign means he's got the plan. King means he's got the authority. Lord means he has the power. So the guy in charge of my spiritual battle has got the plan and knows the time. He's got the authority to command whoever he's fighting to drop it and stop anytime he wants. And he's got the power to do it with one simple word. Sovereign King and Lord, which is why we worship him, which is why we can deal with spiritual warfare and not have debilitating anxiety or debilitating depression or just throwing up our hands and saying, I'm going to go back to living my pagan lifestyle because then Satan won't mess with me anymore. The realization of our God as sovereign and King of kings and Lord of lords means he is going to win and has already, in fact, won the spiritual warfare in terms of our eternal salvation. And what we're in now is just a minor skirmish before we get to the ultimate battle, the result of which is already known. Now, what we've got to realize in this situation is that it is a constant battle for us. It's something that we're never going to resolve until we ultimately step into heaven. It's something we cannot do on our own. It's going to take a lot of people to do it through us. But I'll give you some historical application here to try to give this some uh, meaning. Because every time I talk on spiritual gifts, I get the same reaction which is, Chris, that's great academically, that's great theologically, I understand it. But in practice, it's so hard because when I step into my house, I don't see Satan's demons. When I step into my office, I don't see Satan's demons. When I drive my car around town or when I'm making my entertainment choices or I'm dealing with whatever I deal with in life, I'm not seeing these forces and instead it's just me as a failure. And so what I discovered in my own life is I'm a student of history. I'm surrounded by books of theology. The stuff you see behind me, I've got four walls worth of mostly theological books, but about 20% of my collection are history books because not only do I love history on great Christian uh, men and women from history or the history of Christianity, I just like history in general. I in particular like war history. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the history of World War II because of all the different things that went into it. And so in studying World War II, I came across some analogies that really helped me a number of years ago get my mind around spiritual warfare. And I want to take just about five minutes to give you some insight into some history that I hope can help you apply this lesson a little bit more. Paris, France in 1939 is a great illustration of the way a lot of us are as Christians. Because if you know your history, Germany, following the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I, was not supposed to ever militarily ramp up again. After Hitler took power as chancellor in 1929-1930, they spent the next decade ramping up like crazy, massively violating the Treaty of Versailles. They were building tanks, they were building airplanes, they were building ships, they were building guns, they were doing everything they weren't supposed to do. And while everybody else in Europe was getting worried and kind of building up themselves, in France, they did the exact opposite. 
they still had the airplanes they used in World War One to help them win World War One, and they thought that was all they needed. They weren't worried about tanks for their cavalry because they still had the horses in the cavalry. And throughout the 1930s in France, there was almost an intentional refusal to prepare for the war environment that they found themselves in. When I realized that, my first reaction was, how can you be so foolish? With 2020 hindsight, you were just setting yourself up to be crushed. And then I realized I myself in my own life do the exact same thing. That so many times I can live in the midst of spiritual warfare and just be completely blind. It doesn't drive me into my Bible more. It doesn't drive me to my knees more to pray. It doesn't drive me closer uh, to Christian brothers that I can get insight from in terms of spiritual warfare going around me. A lot of times as a Christian, I'm just like the French in the 1930s, just kind of living life, going on, hoping uh, like the ostrich with the head in the sand that everything else around me is irrelevant, and I just have to worry about me. So I encourage you to look at the history of that and apply it to your own life and say, well, I got to be mindful of things around us. If I see spiritual warfare going on, if I see an environment of war going on, then I better be prepared. So that's one lesson. Next lesson, uh, Germany decided that they wanted the Sudetenland. That was the region between Germany and Czechoslovakia that was primarily German speaking. And so they went to the French and the British and said, we want that land that's got German speakers in it, uh, in the Sudetenland, do you mind if we take it over? And uh, despite the evilness of it and the wrongness of it, the French just capitulated and the British just capitulated and said, okay, no problem. And the Germans showing how evil they were didn't stop there. They just came on through, took the Sudetenland, and then took all of Czechoslovakia and moved into Prague. Now, a great application for us is we look around our world and we see evil every time we turn on the TV and every time we open up a newspaper or read an online news story. And yet so many times we just consent to the evil in our world and we don't speak up and we don't do anything with it and we don't worry about it. And World War II gave me a great illustration because I can look at it and just scratch my head and say, how could you do those things? How could you allow evil to proceed unchecked, just assuming it's going to stop? And I look in my own life and I realize that has got to drive me to my Bible. That has got to drive me to my knees. That's got to drive me to have a better understanding of what I need to do as a Christian to stand up for truth and stand up for evil whenever I see it. Other little great lesson is uh, once the Germans uh, rolled into Poland uh, in, the, in, uh, the, in September of 1939, after they rolled into Czechoslovakia in March of 1939, at that point in time, Europe, and France in particular, had the ability to do something. Hitler realized after they let him go into Czechoslovakia, they weren't going to lift a finger to stop him from going into Poland, so he crossed the border on September 1st of 39 and moved in. Now, it was interesting that France and Britain declared war immediately, but didn't lift a finger to do anything, didn't send a troop across the line, didn't send any weapons or support to Poland, just said, oh no, that's bad, we're going to declare war against you, but then didn't lift a finger to do anything about it. Instead, what they did was they relied upon the arrogance of their victory in World War I and just said, well, we don't have to worry about that evil coming into our lives because we're protected. In World War I, their general named Maginot created a defensive line uh, in places a big hole in the ground, in places big earthen monuments they would put weapons and men inside of, almost like a hollowed out hill, uh, and it was called the Maginot Line. And in World War I, they could get over a million men in these hills and in these trenches all along this line. And when the Germans were invading Czechoslovakia and invading Poland, the French just said, oh, we don't have to worry about this. We're going to be protected by this thing that protected us in the past. In reality, what happened is the Germans just went around it. They just went through the Netherlands and through Belgium and through Luxembourg and just didn't even step a foot over the Maginot Line. And so all the French troops that were there just got completely bypassed. And just like they overran Poland in three weeks, they overran France in three weeks. And there was hardly uh, a conflict that was worth uh, mentioning or a fight that was worth documenting because the Germans just completely rolled in. Now, there's great 
spiritual application there as well. Because as much as you could look at that historical situation and say, how could you be so foolish? How could you be so arrogant? We do the exact same thing. We see successes from our prior life, our, our prior uh, experiences. And we say, well, I, I got through it the first time. I can get through it again. I got through that rough patch in my marriage. I got through that rough patch in my job. I got through that rough patch in whatever it is in, in another situation. And we think, I'll be able to do it again. And that arrogance is often misplaced. And just like we can look uh, and think that they were foolish uh, in the 1930s, in early 1940s, we ought to look at our own lives and realize we too do the exact same things today in 2020 uh, in our own spiritual lives and in our own uh, relationships and marriages and jobs. And we've got to be careful uh, about having the same failures that caused so many deaths in World War II. Final point that's worth noting on, because the, the Germans took over and moved into Paris and took over all of northern France. The most fascinating aspect in history in all of this to me is that all the German generals who were alive in 1940 when they invaded uh, Poland and invaded France that were alive at the end of the war got interviewed by all the Allied forces. They were doing the war trials and trying to figure out what happened. And every single German general said the exact same thing. They said if the French had done what they knew they could and should have done when Germany invaded Poland in September of 1940. Because the Germans put so many forces on their eastern border and into Poland. At the day of the invasion, there were 110 divisions in France on that Maginot line, and there was only 23 German divisions. 110 versus 23. The Germans also said there was a two to three week supply line of fuel and food. And every single German general said, if the French had invaded and gone all the way from the border in France, from the Maginot Line to Berlin, the war would have ended in three weeks and 40 million lives lost in the European theater in World War II would have been saved. When I first realized that, I was completely blown away and then had a personal application that so many times in life we've got opportunities to do small things, opportunities to help, opportunities to diffuse a situation, opportunities to use resources that God's given us, opportunities to be the right person at the right place, that so many times we just get comfortable in our lives and just kick back and say, I'm not going to worry about this. And then, fast forward months and years later, disaster happens, tragedy strikes, and in our own life, it's the equivalent of the Nazis in beautiful Paris. And so I've used that historical application to remind me so many times, don't lose the opportunity to do those little things that can make so much difference because so many times it just requires us to act in order to do something. To give us some application to end on in the last few minutes we've got, I want to end on this. To win the fight. We gotta have the right strategy. That's why I'm taking the time to teach you this lesson. We gotta have the right resources. We've got that through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives because our victories, just like in World War II, today in our spiritual lives, don't come by accident. So what can we do? I found this on the internet. It's from a pastor. I don't know him, but I like this. So I thought it was, I was researching uh, over the last couple of weeks. thought this was a great application. I'll go through them real quick. Five levels of spiritual warfare for me and you, every single believer. Number one, fight temptation and negative thoughts. It starts in how I think. If I struggle with how I think, I need to pray more. I need to expose that to God. I need to share it with a buddy. Uh, I've got accountability buddies, and it really helps me on this point. If you don't, you need one. Number two, fighting strife in relationships. I wake up every morning and say, Satan is going to try to hurt me and Natalie today. What am I going to do about it? It gets me studying. It keeps me praying. It keeps me loving on my wife and doing the things with her to maintain the integrity in my relationship, to be a good husband to her. And I've got to fight strife in my relationship because Satan's trying to break it up and he's trying to do it with you as well if you're in a relationship. Number three, I got to fight with prayer 
to remain strong in the Lord. I've got to pray the right things. I've got to have a heart for him. So it's not just me with my wish list. It's me using prayer to say, God, speak to me, move me, change me, and make prayer from a me to God situation from God to me. Number four, I've got to... Uh, uh, fighting in prayer for others. I've got to be concerned with other people where I can pray for them. And I've got to know where they've got needs and tragedy and anguish and anxiety and depression, which means I got to be talking to them. I got to be texting them. I got to be emailing them. I got to be visiting with them if I can socially distanced now, uh, but I got to stay connected with everybody that's in my sphere of influence so that I know how to pray for them. Uh, and then finally, I've got to fight in intercession and travailing for the life of others. What that means is not only am I aware of a need, but I'm going to let other people know about that need, and I'm going to get a group of people to help me pray, like my family, sometimes like my coworkers, my partners at the law firm. And then if I've got the ability to do something, I'm going to do something. I'm going to travail for them. I'm going to try to help them through that situation. Those are five great things that kind of take that analogy of World War II and say, well, I'm aware of this problem. I don't want to be apathetic. I don't want to be uh, too much like an ostrich in the sand. What am I going to do? And notice all these things. It focuses on me and my prayer life. It focuses on me and my time in scripture. It focuses on opportunity for me to make a difference with those around me through my relationships. And it's allowing God to fight the spiritual warfare. It keeps me loving people to bring them to Christ but it keeps me letting God fight with Satan and fight with his demons because I can just do within my uh, uh, possessions, within my sphere of influence. And so I'm going to do that with my prayer life, with my study time, uh, with my time in worship, with my family. Uh, and I'm just going to do worry about those things ahead of me to press on and persevere. Uh, next week, we're going to take this issue of spiritual warfare and we're going to go even deeper. Because Paul is teaching about spiritual warfare in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's about to walk into it when he walks back into Rome. Something really big is going to happen historically. Paul's going to be swept up in the blame. It's going to put him in the deepest, darkest dungeon prison you can imagine, which I will show you next week. And then we're going to talk about how in the world could this happen. When one of the saints of God, has the world pulled out from under them literally when Satan says, I am finally going to stop you. What do we do? And what do you do when the rest of the world looks around you and says, hey, wait a minute. I thought that was one of God's good guys. I thought that was one of God's saints. How can God allow that to happen? We're going to tackle that, which is probably one of the greatest, most difficult theological questions anyone's ever going to ask you next week, and we're going to tackle the question of why do bad things happen to good people. I hope you'll join me then. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study spiritual warfare. We pray that you'd use this to motivate us and encourage us to stay closer to your word, to stay closer to you in prayer, to stay closer to our loved ones, and stay closer to those that you've put around us, including the non-believers who so desperately need to see you. And what we say and what we do, and how we react to them, and what we do for them. We pray that this week would be an opportunity for us to engage in spiritual warfare by being a better servant for you, recognizing you are sovereign, you are King of kings, you are Lord of lords, and we simply are going to say thank you, we love you, and be obedient. Thank you for the opportunity. It's not by our power, but by your power in us that we ask these things in your name. Amen. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.